This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. She'll lift you up and empower you to help your child and your family thrive. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams. Thanks for joining me on this next episode of the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I am happy today to have with me Amanda Morin. You might know her from understood.org. And we're going to talk about some school issues, um, advocating for your kids, what are 504 plans and IEPs, and um, how to know the difference and how to get... um, you know, different accommodations and services that your child might need. And and really, I hope to talk about how you would know what your child might need as well. Welcome to the podcast, Amanda. I am so happy to have you here with us. Will you start by introducing yourself? Just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, Who I am and what I do. That's so many questions that I'm trying to (laughs) think through here. Um, So first and foremost, I was a classroom teacher and an early intervention specialist for many years um, and have then evolved into the role of being an education writer and a parent advocate. Um, I also have three children, two of whom have learning and attention issues. So it's sort of this perfect mix of all of these aspects of my life when we start talking about advocacy and working with kids with um, learning issues and ADHD. I write about it to talk to parents. I've now started working um, on another project for Understood for Educators so we can sort of bridge that partnership between parents and educators and make sure everybody's on the same page and working to support kids. Um, And I'm also the author of a number of books on this topic too, including um, the Everything Parents Guide to Special Education. Awesome. Yeah, I think that that collaboration between school and parent and student is so valuable and we really, we don't see it very often, at least not in my experience. Um, I think it takes a lot of work and I, and I love that you put in and student there because student voice is so important, right? We're always trying to make sure our kids get to the point where they're able to know what their needs are and how right. to speak up for them, right? And uh, while we're talking about it, what age do you recommend? You know, I get this question a lot. What age should my child start coming to IEP or 504 meetings? And, uh, you know, for me, it's always been a question of how contentious is the meeting, whether or not he would be there, because that's our history, unfortunately, in a lot of school meetings. And um, now he's 16, he's in high school, and he's really required to be there. And he should be there. But we did start including him in junior high and middle school. Um, But, you know, I would love to see even elementary school kids really be part of the process. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. And I have a 16-year-old and eight-year-old who we still do IEP meetings for. And like you, my 16-year-old is required to be there. Um, But we started having them come to IEP meetings when they were very young. Um, And 
for, for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, because we were talking about them and I wanted to include them in those conversations because as you know, as a parent, you always need your child's buy-in. We can't make decisions about them and tell them they're going to do something unless they're sort of bought into whether or not they're going to, to do it. Yep. Uh, and in some ways I found that having them there, even if it's just for a little bit, right? Just at that very beginning where they come in and say, this is what's going well for me at school. Here's where I could use a little help. Um, hi, you may not have met me yet because sometimes some of the people around the table haven't even met my child. Yeah. It, it can take down that feeling of contentiousness a little bit. I actually wrote a piece for this on understood.org about when, when do you bring a child in and at what age and how you can start including them a little bit more. And for me, that was the key is to be able to, to let them know that they have a voice, but they don't have to be there for the whole time because it can be uncomfortable to mm-hmm. sit around and listen to people talk about you in a way that doesn't really represent who you think you are. I, I think it's like the key there. Right. Um, but bringing a kid in to, to start talking about who they actually are and what they are beyond what we see in paper is really helpful sometimes. And I don't think that that means you should ask kids to come if they're not comfortable being there, because first and foremost, we want to make sure they're doing something that they're comfortable with and they're using their voice when they're ready to. Yeah. And I like that you brought up that um, they can attend part of the meeting and not the full meeting that kind of jogged my recollection that we actually did that sometimes at younger ages. Um, and, it, you know, we, we need our kids to learn how to self-advocate. And the way to do that is to involve them in the process and to get their input. And sometimes it's it's difficult. Um, so I like that there's, there's different opportunities or different ways to kind of get around it. You know, if you know that the, the meeting is going to have some intense discussions or, um, maybe discuss some things that your child isn't comfortable with really sitting through, you know, you can always ask that they're brought in for a certain part of it, but they don't have to attend the whole thing. Right. You know, and I have a funny story about this too, actually. Um, my eight-year-old, we started having him come to meetings and explaining to him what his IEP, that individualized education program, consists of. So he knows what services he has and what accommodations he has, and and he can speak up for them. And I got a call from the school just the other day saying, so Benjamin has said he doesn't want to be taken out of lunch anymore for this service. And I said, of course not. Why, why would he be, right? You know, he just, he wants to be in lunch. And it happened to be a, um, like a social work, social skills service. So it was really funny to me that he was being taken out of like this this environment where he was practicing those right. practice those skills. And I said, absolutely. If he's telling you that, that's great. And when he came home, I said to him, I'm really proud of you for speaking up. You know, that was so great. And he said to me, you're proud of me. And I said, yeah. And the big word for speaking up is self-advocate. And so he's been walking around for days saying, I effectively self-advocated to have <laughs> my friends. <laughs> it was just, you know, so we're teaching so them good. to speak up at these young ages. And it's kind of, you know, it's, it's cute and funny all at once but I feel like okay I did something right there and I feel good about that yeah Uh, because he knew that he could speak up and that we had his back when it came down to it and by we I mean the whole team which was really nice yeah We've, you know, we've talked about that with my son on occasion, and he always was really worried about getting in trouble, feeling like he was 
back talking or disobeying the right. teacher um, or the authority at school. And so we started having that conversation kind of at the beginning of the school year. We're working with him to self-advocate. So if he tells you that he needs something different, it's not that he's giving you attitude. It's that he's trying to tell you what might work better for him. Um, and so that's something that that parents can do too. That's a um, great idea to set him up because to set him up for success, you're sort of doing right. that behind the scene work. What a great idea. I love yeah. that. So let's backtrack a little bit and talk about what a 504 plan and an IEP are to begin with. Sure. Um, for, for the parents who don't know or who aren't clear, you know, it's very complicated. Definitely. So uh, there are two different plans or two different ways of addressing um needs of kids in classrooms and needs of kids who have different types of disabilities, including ADHD and and autism and and other types of disabilities. Um, An individualized education program, which is that IEP, is the program that's put into place under special education law. And what happens is the child has sort of a comprehensive evaluation where everybody looks at all of their skills and all of their needs and the team sits down together and says, okay, what does this child need to really do well at school? And it includes what's called specialized instruction. And that's the special education component of it. And there may be accommodations and there may be other services and there may be things like extra time, those kinds of things. But the specialized instruction is sort of the key of the individualized education program, the IEP. I'm going to take a breath because that's a lot of information, right? Um, And and there are different ways to qualify or be eligible for an IEP. Each state has sort of varying um, criteria. They all have to follow federal law, but they can but they can also have um, different eligibility criteria that can't be more stringent than federal law, but it can be a little looser than federal law, which is kind of nice. When you're talking about 504 plans, a 504 plan is based on a civil rights law, um, the Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. And what it's saying is you need to provide accommodations for a child in a general education setting to help them access that material the same way their peers can. So in plain language, that means putting into place whatever supports are needed in the general education classroom so they can learn just like everybody else in the classroom. And it doesn't necessarily need that specialized instruction. So a lot of times 504 plans are accommodation plans. Um, You can have them for all kinds of things. Sometimes you'll see them for things like food allergies, right? Mm -hmm. There are things that need to be put into place there. Sometimes you'll see a child who has ADHD will have a 504 plan um, for things like sensory breaks or wiggle cushions or a little bit of occupational therapy support or those kinds of things that don't need to be done separate from the general education classroom. Um, yeah. Is that, is that helpful? Does that sort of... It is. Yeah, and you like know, it? for years I was told that with a 504, you could not access services at all. You couldn't, you couldn't access any people time, any mm-hmm. staff in the school. I know, I know this now, but unfortunately I didn't know it then. And, um, and I think still in our area, they, they, stand firmly on the on that um and so it's so hard because you know i think the real difficulty is that everybody in the country in schools is not on the same page they don't all have the knowledge and understanding of what these laws actually mean and how to 
put them into place effectively for different kids. Um, and so my understanding was always that if it's accommodations only, it's a 504. If you need something else, it's an IEP. But it, but I've come to learn that that's not really the case. And I just kind of wanted to point that out specifically in this conversation because I think, I, I know I'm not the only person who was ever advised oh, incorrectly with that. Right. I'm sure it's still happening in lots of places. Um, and I think and, sometimes the education team doesn't always know the difference either. Right. Um, you know, and I think that's one of the reasons that I'm excited to work with both parents and teachers is because it's okay to not know on both sides. You just have to learn to look for the answers. Um, one of the best things that I've seen is this um, chart that a colleague of mine put together of the difference between 504s and IEPs. And I looked at that and went, whoa, I could have used this when I started like yeah. years and years ago. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the other things that, that people don't know often is that when you have an IEP, you can also, there's a place in IEPs to provide teacher training. So if the teacher needs support, you can ask that the teacher has support and learns about this specific condition that your child has, or maybe they need to learn a certain type of um, reading instruction to help your child. That's in there too. And I think a lot of times, not everybody knows that, that you can ask for that as well. They definitely don't because even I didn't know that after 10 years of... (laughs) of being this parent, but also, you know, 10 years of researching obsessively and writing about ADHD and all these other things. I didn't even know that, you know, I, I, in my experience, I get a lot of resistance with the schools in our area. Um, and unfortunate, you know, it's just an unfortunate thing that I think happens in a lot of places. And I think that resistance is born of not having that knowledge. Like you said, they just don't know. I agree. Um, And so the more we can educate parents and help them to be able to bring forward these ideas to their schools, the better, because then they'll be more successful in advocating for their child. Yeah. And I think that resistance is a common experience. I mean, I know that I've experienced it too. It's it's a common experience. And, you know, I think back to my years as a teacher and I realized like some of that I think is about feeling like you're doing a good enough job. And as a teacher, I think I was most resistant when I felt most challenged. Um, so yeah. I think when parents come in and they bring in that information, it can be a relief to be, to be able to say, oh, okay, now I know this too. And and we all know this and we can move forward from here. Um, but the resistance can be difficult. I mean, I, I don't want to downplay that at all. It, it, it can be a difficult place to be in um, because you really want what's best for your child. You want them to thrive. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, it's funny that you said that because in elementary school that, you know, was said to me blatantly in IEP meetings, well, it's obvious you love your son. It's obvious you want the best for him. And, you know, saying that I was asking for the moon and my love for my kid was clouding my judgment on being realistic, I guess, you know, but, you know, that, that has actually been said to me in IEP meetings and, and, you know, there's also this issue with schools about budgets and staffing and, you know, in North Carolina where I am, education budget has just been chopped and chopped and chopped and chopped. And, and, you know, I think that unfortunately, even though the law says that money can't be part of their decision making for what a student needs, it is. I mean, the reality is that it is part of that Um 
on a regular basis, I think. I think sometimes it can be. And I think that's where, you know, creative problem solving is like your best friend in those situations. I, you know, I think it's really tough when you're being told that, that your, your love for your child is, is getting in the way. Um, because it's, it's really not, it's what drives you forward. Right. I mean, as a parent, that's what drives me forward is, is knowing that I want my kids to be successful adults. And in order to do that, they have to be successful children, right. To be Mm -hmm. able to, to make it through. Um, I think one of the, I think one of the problems that we see is, you know, as you know, when we're talking about IEPs, there's this idea of free appropriate public education. And every child is just, is entitled to what's called FAPE, Mm -hmm. um, which I kind of like just saying FAPE, you know, (laughs) and and that's that free appropriate public education. And I think sometimes deciding the line between appropriate and optimal becomes a real push and pull um, Mm -hmm. when you're in meetings, right? And so- so defining what's appropriate for one child may be really different than what's appropriate for another child. And I think sometimes we have to really challenge everybody to think outside the box and think about, okay, but what's appropriate for this specific kid, not for this kid with this kind of diagnosis, right? Like, like it's not, this kid is a, a unique individual with unique needs. He's not just a kid with ADHD, right? So, right. And even, yeah. And even what's um, appropriate for this child versus their peers, their neurotypical peers, you know, almost every single IEP meeting we've ever had, it's been this conversation about, well, he's this age. And so, you know, right. And so really getting that through too, you know, making sure that, you know, I just, we just had an IP meeting two weeks ago and right away they started in with, well, you know, you're 16 and now, and I said, wait a minute, this is a developmental disability. We need to have the conversation about the developmental disability. He is 16. He looks like a man child, (laughs) but he is... 12 or 13 at best in the area that we were discussing, which was executive functioning. And really for a lot of his executive functioning, I would put him in like seven, age seven. Yeah. Like it's really bad. Which um, is not atypical for, yeah, it's not atypical for teenagers anyway, you know, to some degree. Right. Right. But, and I think that's where data becomes your best friend. I mean, who, I, I can't believe I just said that because it's it, <laughs> it like, but it really does. Because I think that's where you look at um, work samples and evaluations and say, you know, look at this, look at where this kid is um, really doing well and where he's really not doing well. And you can see it, you can see, you know, mm-hmm. organization, planning, prioritization, all of those things, work initiation, um, those executive functioning skills, you can see that those are things that are not up to par, but maybe his verbal language is like through the roof and he can really mm-hmm. talk and tell a good story. I don't know your son, but he, I, I feel no, like- No, you just described him perfectly. Uh, well, then, then, I, then I think he's, he's, he's <laughs> very much like mine. You know, I think there are all of these pieces, right? That That you have to say, can we look at what we see from him to discuss who he is and not who he should be, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. And it's hard. And, you know, in that instance, even after having that conversation, it was still, um, you know, he's got to be able to manage it on his own. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we just always are kind of up against it. And I've come to the point of counting down the years until we're done with it. <laughs> For probably a few years now. 
one of the best things I think I've ever um, enjoyed writing, you know, and as you, I mean, you do it all the time too. Like there's certain things that just really give you joy when you write about it is mm-hmm. conversation starters um, because it's hard to start those conversations. So conversation starters and diffusing phrases and things like that are some of my favorite things to write because then you can hand it to a parent and say, if you're really stuck, here's a way to start this conversation. Or if, if things go in a direction you didn't expect, you can start back with saying, okay, I hear what you're saying, but what is the data telling me? You know, like there are all of these yeah, ways awesome. to circle back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about qualification for a minute. Um, qualification for a 504, for an IEP. Um, one specific thing that I want to be sure we discuss is that a lot of parents will be told that their child doesn't qualify because they have good grades. Right. And which, we know that's not true. Right. I was going to say, which is, is not exactly true, right? So um, yes. I think that there there's a lot of um, misinformation around the fact that if a child is doing well in terms of grades, they don't, they're not eligible to even be looked at for an IEP. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the first part where you, you want to say, okay, good grades, but what else is going on? So if, if you know, sometimes, sometimes what you're seeing is behavioral issues. And I'm, I'm a huge believer in that behavior is communication, right? Yep. If a child's avoiding something, it's for a reason. If they're, they're, you know, acting out, maybe they're overwhelmed by the stimuli or the sensory stuff, right? I'm a huge believer in that behavior needs to be looked at in depth kinds of things. Me too. Yeah. And, and those are the kinds of places where I'm always, um, sort of, I wouldn't say pushing back, but I would say gently nudging, right? To be able right. to say, um, yes, his grades are great, but he's missed three classes because he's had to go to the principal's office because of, you know, it sounded like he was talking back to his teacher and that's missed education time, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to start, there, there are these ways that you have to start talking about this and saying, what we're talking about here is, is this impacting this child's education? And if it is, you know, if the kid's missing school, if he's missing class time, if he's not getting the social cues working with his peers, that's when you say, okay, so the grades are good, but what else is missing here? Because there are a whole lot of other things that go into being a successful student. Um, and those are the times where I think it's important to say, I'm going to put into writing that I'm asking for an evaluation. And if the school system um, says, we don't think he needs to be evaluated, they need to give you what's called prior written notice and the explanation of why they think he may not have a disability that's impacting his education. So it's sort of this, it feels like a tedious process, but I think it's, it's really important to ask for that evaluation, do it in writing, explain your concerns, back up why it is that you think that this is impacting education. Um, and even, you know, say, and I think what we need to look at is accommodations, sensory breaks, whatever it is you think might be helpful um, to start those conversations and just know that there are, there's precedent. There's precedent both in the courts and in, in guidance through the Office of Special Education that says just because a child has good grades doesn't mean you can't be eligible for services. Right. One thing that um, an attorney friend of mine who also is an adult with ADHD, Rob Tudisco, had taught me, you know, Rob, he's he's awesome. He's super awesome. Um, 
he, when I was writing my second book, um, What to Expect When Parenting Children with ADHD, I had a whole chapter on schools and knew that I was not obviously um, the most knowledgeable on that. And he reviewed that chapter for me. And one thing he added was that you can use your school's handbook Mm -hmm. as a measure of whether or not your child is succeeding. Because in the handbook, they talk about behavior. They talk about these other pieces that aren't just academic and aren't just... Uh, like testing and, you know, grades and all of these things. Um, And he said, you know, if, if your child isn't meeting any expectations in that handbook, then that's kind of a little bit of ammunition for you to say, you know, here in the handbook, it states this about behavior and he's not able to meet that. So he needs assistance um, in this area. Um, My favorite thing for behavior is a functional behavior assessment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that looks at what behavior, why it looks at all the things surrounding it. Right. And that's, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Those whys. Those whys and, and the what happens and, you know, and I'm, a you know, I am always, I'm always amazed and delighted when a school puts into place after doing a functional behavior assessment, a both a proactive and reactive behavior plan. Um, because I think a lot of times what we see is reactive, right? Something mm-hmm. happens, a kid does something and we have a reaction and we, we deal with it right then. But when you do a really good functional behavior assessment, you're looking at how do you interrupt those behaviors, right? How do you replace them with better working behaviors? And so you can put into place a proactive plan saying like, here's how we're going to work on making sure that you have a way to communicate when you're feeling stressed out or you're when you're feeling wiggly or when you're feeling overwhelmed or all those, those kinds of things. Um, and I just thought that's such great advice about the handbook because the expectations are literally in front of you. Exactly. <laughs> right? That's, yeah, yeah, it's pretty genius. Yeah, it is. Definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, and the other thing I love about the FBA process is that it looks at what could be the reasons that this behavior is happening. Mm-hmm. What is the perceived function for the child? And when they're younger, there's not necessarily a, you know, an intention behind the behavior, but Correct. there's still some sort of reason. There's some sort of trigger for it. And, you know, when teachers sit through this and even other school staff, it, it gets them started in thinking about behavior in that way. Why is this behavior happening? What could we do to make this student successful in these different situations or environments or whatever it might be? And, um, and then you have all of these strategies. You know, if you use the, the FBA format, then you're, addre- you're adding a strategy for each one of those behaviors that everybody in the room is on the same page that that's the strategy that's going to be used. And, you know, you have this whole plan now. And I mean, I just think it's one of the most valuable tools that we have. And I think it gives everybody sort of level sets, right? Instead of everybody going in and thinking that this kid is just, you know, being defiant or or any of those things that we hear that are sort of Mm -hmm. negative, right? It level sets in a way of saying, okay, wait a minute, we're going to look at this from a perspective of good intent, presuming competence, presuming that this child is capable, but doesn't have the underlying skills in place to do it well. And what do we need to do? So when you talk about executive functioning, that's 
hard to learn. So we need to do what's called explicit instruction. We need to teach it very specifically mm-hmm. to kids. And so it gives you a way to sort of flip that on its head and say, oh, this isn't a kid who's defiant. He just doesn't know how to respond appropriately. And we need to teach him these responses that you know, are going to get him a better result. Um, and it just, I think it's so important to be able to, to realize that kids really, really, you know, it's the raw screen thing that kids will do well if they, they can, right. They're not, they, they want to, they want to be, do want, they don't want to be different. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to be in this place where they don't fit in in a way that's uncomfortable for them. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I will say one of the one of the things I I have often said in IEP meetings is to remind people that about my child. You know, he doesn't want to look different. He doesn't want to come across um, badly to his peers. He wants to have friends. He wants to go out and and be successful. Um, what would it serve him to be thought of in a in a way that's negative? So let's let's think about how do we do this differently? How do we look at him um, in a more positive light? And, you know, I will also tell you one of the things that I think about a lot is um, I think we all need to remember we're the adults in the situation. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that gets lost, Um, you know, because I think a lot of our kids, the kids who have ADHD, the kids who, who have spectrum disorders, the kids, a lot of these kids are often twice exceptional and they're really, really smart kids and they can feel like they're, they're challenging you personally, but you need to take a step back and realize, oh, this isn't personal and I'm the adult here and I can do this, right? (laughs) Like I can, right. right? Um, Let's talk a second then about twice exceptionality and how to really handle that at school. It's really been a double-edged sword for us um, because it defines for most educators it defines expectations and capability just intelligence alone oh this kid is bright he's got a gifted iq he can totally do this stuff um and and that has just come up over and over with plenty of different people and and you know at some point in a very bad school setting it was constant day after day he was being told you're smart enough to do better you're smart enough to do this and that is so damaging is so emotionally damaging to our kids and so how do we as parents then figure out how to kind of again it's more about educating them that that IQ isn't just the sole measure of capability that there's all these other pieces um you know that's that's a struggle I think for a lot of families I think so and I and you know I I write about this a lot because both of my kids are twice exceptional um which if I did the math that's some sort of exponential exceptional right like I don't know exactly how to do the math there yeah me too right, it's like right. the power of eight or something exactly. yes. something like that right so yes. um so you know I, I I write about this a lot I think about this a lot I think that um to some degree um you know, things like what you're doing and things like what we're doing at Understood and things like what Debbie Reber does with Tilt Parenting. And we've just Mm -hmm. heard a podcast at Understood called In It, like to elevate these voices of parents who are talking about these things is really important, first of all, to make sure everybody understands this is a thing. And I think a lot of teachers don't know that twice exceptionality exists, to be to, to be honest. And twice exceptionality, yeah. that that idea, it's it's holding two really opposite things in your your brain. Like this is a really gifted intellectually child who has some really 
clear deficits, really clear things that are that are difficult. It's really hard to hold that in your brain, right? It's yeah. hard to realize that. Um, and I think so. First of all, just educating people and saying this really can exist. You know, you can. And I think a lot of times it's easy to to do that and saying like, think of three things that you're really really good at and three things that you really don't do well, right? those exist at the same time. And it may not be, and so that's sort of a a simple way of starting to have that conversation. And then when it comes to twice exceptionality, it's really important to talk about um, asynchronous development, that development that doesn't go evenly, right? So I have a child who's eight, who talks like an 80 year old half the time. Like we have these amazing conversations Mm -hmm. about really sort of esoteric ideas. But at the same time, I look at him and I'm like, you're acting like a four-year-old because he's acting like a four-year-old because behaviorally and emotionally, that's where he is. And I think to be able to describe that is a hard thing, but to be able to to say, this is very, very common with kids who are twice exceptional. They have pockets of skills that are like exceptional. And then they have skills that they really struggle with. And they're really aware of that too, right? I don't know about they're really aware that they can't do these things and it's frustrating for them. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times to circle back to behavior, a lot of times that's what you're seeing is that frustration. I should be able to do this. And I think if we are teaching kids to say, this is hard for me and I need help in doing this. And we're teaching teachers and parents to understand that there are things that are hard and that's okay. You know? Um, And with the right support, Kids can succeed. You know, my my oldest is taking AP classes and he has accommodations in his AP classes because he needs accommodations, but it doesn't mean he can't do the the AP classes. It just means he needs that support in those classes as well as all of his other classes. Um, and it's it's just it's a hard thing to think through is this this idea of giftedness, but also with a disability. I think it's much harder when you're talking about these sort of invisible disabilities, right? Yeah. It's much easier to see that a child has a physical disability and is gifted than it is to see that he has some neurological different wiring, but is also gifted because that's not as visible. And so we need to be pointing out and, you know, printing off information about whatever condition you're talking about, whether it's dyslexia or ADHD or autism or whatever those things are. Sometimes it's a matter of printing out, here's literally some of the things you might see from a child like this. And also, here's all these great things he knows how to do on top of that. Um, You know, it, it comes back to that idea of level setting. Here's what you might see from a child and then add on this additional layer um, to like tell hilarious jokes that nobody else in the class will get who's going to have these conversations with you that are so in-depth that you're just yeah. amazed, but also isn't going to know how to get his homework from home to school because it's just not his strength to be able to remember those kinds mm-hmm. of things. Yeah, I always think about it as kind of two two areas, intelligence and functioning. Yep. Um, and, you know, ADHD really can hamper a lot of the functioning of traditional school. Right. You know, most for my son, he cannot take gifted or AP classes because the volume of output 
mm-hmm. is drastically increased for the gifted classes here. And that output is where he struggles. It's the output and then it's the organizing and planning and managing the output and getting it where it should go or, you know, right. and so we end up not being able to do those. And I, you know, I guess that really he should be able to be accommodated and have reduced assignments or things like that. Um, It just was not the biggest battle for us. So I I kind of let that go. I was just going to say, sometimes you pick your battles and sometimes it's about making sure your child's okay before anything else, you know, and for us for years, that was you know, he made the choices. We were like, do you want to be in the gifted deli? He was like, it's too much. I can't handle it. I can't. And we let him make that choice because it was more important to us that he was okay than he was, you know, pushed in a way that he didn't feel comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And when they're older, they get to make that choice. And, you know, we, we had the experience of being in gifted cluster, um, in third grade or fourth grade and sixth grade and both times were absolutely the worst anxiety and stress of his life so we realized pretty quickly that it just wasn't worth it he couldn't function because he was so stressed out and upset and um, school avoidance started and all of these things and you know we just said okay this is not worth that it's it's okay for him to be super smart and not take gifted or AP classes, it's perfectly acceptable, you know, and and the general public, we, you don't think about that. And it's something, you know, I talk a lot about changing our parenting, our perspective, our expectations, our, you know, the, the way in which we do parenting and, and we really need to do the same thing for our expectations of education for our kids. Not to say that we don't expect them to do well or to thrive and learn, but just that we open our mind to the possibility that a smart kid may not be able to tolerate gifted or AP classes, you know, those sorts of things. I agree. And I think that we have a lot to learn from our kids. Um, they, they tell us what they need in ways sometimes that we don't look, that we don't look for. Um, and like that avoidance kind of stuff is telling you something, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I, and I totally agree. And I think that, um, I think that it, doesn't need to be how you define your child and your child doesn't need to define themselves. They know they're smart. They know they've got this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But they, what they need is, is all the other things that functional stuff definitely is huge. I mean, those are the ways we become adults and, and, and manage adulthood. You know, I needed to know how to put on my calendar that we were going to talk today and to remember to get on the, the phone and talk with you, right? Right, exactly. And that's a skill that's a, that I had to learn kind of thing. Um, and those are the kinds of things that our kids are going to need to learn too. Mm-hmm. That's a very simple Yeah, and I think example. those are the toughest yeah. when you have yeah. such big executive functioning deficits. Yeah. Um, I wanted to mention too, modified assignments because, you know, one of the ways in which everyone can have more of an open mind, really look at the student specifically, their individual needs is to say, okay, this assignment doesn't really play to their strengths, but how can we do it differently? For example, my son, um, the semester that we just completed, which was sophomore year, mm-hmm. I can't believe it, but there we are. <laughs> yeah. And um, he had in both English and in biology, his teachers allowed him to do some of the assignments and projects in a different way because he also has 
dysgraphia. So for example, in biology, they had to create a cell booklet and they had to draw all these things and, mm-hmm. and you know, cut paper and staple it like a booklet and all these things. And his teacher said, hey, he can do a video, he can do a PowerPoint, you know, he can do it a different way and he will get the same credit as people who are doing it by hand and you know if every teacher could think about every assignment and I'm starting I started to see it more as he got into middle school and high school the teachers were starting to give projects and say you can do it in one of three ways an essay or a video or a powerpoint or whatever Um, and that is so huge yeah and what you're talking about and I I think I want to make the distinction between modified assignments and different ways of presenting information because a modified and this is just um, it's just like a terminology thing to me. Like the modified uh, modification is changing the expectation of the, the what the child does, right? So maybe lowering the expectation or, or lowering the amount. But what you're talking about is different ways of showing what they've learned, which is sort of a hallmark of universal design for learning or UDL. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's that's a really tremendous way of looking at learning in which teachers are presenting different opportunities, different ways to learn things, different ways to present what you know um, and give cho- choice and autonomy to kids to be able to, to, to tell them this is how I want to learn this. And this is how I need to do this. Um, and so it's not modifying, it's not lowering the expectations. It's just getting different avenues to look at things. Um, and it, the cool thing is it feels like a modification, right? What you're doing, right. you're changing the system a little bit. Um, and it's really cool. I think you do see that more in high school, but I would love to see that more in younger across the board right we just actually did this really cool video in a classroom a fifth grade classroom um i'll make sure to 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 send it to you for the the educator um content that we're doing on understood.org there's a fifth grade teacher in georgia who this is how he runs his entire classroom is choice and autonomy and having kids teach him how they learn and it's teaching them to become expert learners and it was just so amazing to see this in action and isn't that such a better way to raise kids and educate kids? That's much more preparing them for the reality of life right. than this very rigid, strict, traditional, um, I mean, our, our traditional school philosophies are really kind of like the authoritarian parenting. It's like authoritarian teaching and it's very rigid and it, I just... Yeah, I'm a huge yeah. believer that we need to turn everything on its head and I we're think, doing with kids. But. And I think that that's where parents, you know, we can be quiet disruptors, right? We right. can, or, or not so quiet disruptors. I'm not sure. It depends on, uh, you know, you can be a stealthy ninja or you can be however you want to do it, right? You I'm can a be, bear. Yes, exactly. But mm-hmm. that presenting that idea and saying, you know, what if you did a video instead? What if, um, you know, the example that this teacher, he talked about a child who baked a cake in different layers to talk about the different layers of a story. And I was like, whoa, that's amazing and delicious. So awesome. you know? yeah. <laughs> right. And then the whole class gets cake too. Right? I mean, what could be better? Everybody wins in that situation. <laughs> yeah. Right there. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, to teach our kids to do this so that right. we're not the only ones asking, but, you know, if, if your high school student, say, gets an assignment and it's, this long essay and they know that writing is their weakest point, then they should feel like they can go to the teacher and express that and say, you know, writing is really hard for me. I don't do it well. It's a very long process. It's stressful. Can I do a poster instead? Can I do a video and talk about it instead? A lot of kids have high verbal fluency that don't have like 
any written fluency at all. Or even, you know, is there a speech to text option here? Mm -hmm. Can I speak this and have it be typed as I'm speaking? You know, Mm -hmm. those kinds of accommodations, um, you know, very, those are very common. And And that's free on Google. Exactly. I was just going to say it's built into the Google system. It's built into almost every smartphone (laughs) you can Um, the punctuation, you may have to go back and, and look at a little bit, but it's a great option. You know, you can, if you can tell the story and it's typing it out for you, you're meeting the expectation of doing that essay. The expectation isn't necessarily that your handwriting is perfect, right? So it's a matter of saying, I'm going to meet the goal of this assignment, but in a different way, right? To, to, and yeah. I think that that's what my son has learned to do is to say to teachers, tell me exactly what the goal of this assignment is. And of course, he's had a lot of coaching on the side from mom, sure. you know, to do that. What's the goal of the assignment? So it's not like, so you're grading me on handwriting. Okay, so you're grading me on the ideas. How can I present those ideas in a way that you're not going to ding me for all the things that don't really matter otherwise? right. right? right. Yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, I've done that in the past to modify assignments using that term correctly now. Um, You know, I will ask a teacher, no, no, I'm glad you pointed that out because I've been misusing it for a very long time. Um, I didn't really understand that there was a distinction myself. So I'm sure it was a good learning moment for all of us. Um, But we, you know, for homework, and this is the last thing that I really had on my list that I wanted to be sure that we discuss in this episode is homework. Um, But I would ask the teacher, what is the goal and what is your expectation of all your students as far as time? So for instance, in third grade, the teacher might've said, you know, 30 minutes, no more for homework assignments. Mm -hmm. And so we had an understanding. He did 30 minutes. He, you know, he got my help, whatever he needed. And then um, at the end of that 30 minutes, he was considered as completing the assignment, even if he didn't finish the work. Um, That was one way to do it. And um, because, you know, I'm a firm believer that if your child is doing two hours of homework a night when it's supposed to be 30 minutes for everybody else, they're Mm -hmm. being punished for having a disability. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's just the bottom line. And that's where you come back to the IEP or 504 plan, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of things that's really important to have spelled out in there so that everybody knows that this is an across the board kind of thing. So, you know, if the expectation is when there are 30 minutes of homework, my child's going to work for 30 minutes and no more. It's a really good idea to have that written in as an accommodation Mm -hmm. in the 504 plan or the IEP. and. And just for for people who may not know this, you and I know this because we've done this for a really long time with our own kids. You can ask for a meeting at any time. You can always ask to have that meeting and and tweak things a little bit if you think there need to be those tweaks. And and I would would really encourage parents not to hesitate or be shy about asking for meetings when you have things you need to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I've kind of used that as a a nudge myself. I'll just keep calling meetings until you finally give us this thing we need we can do this painful meeting over and over if that's terrible but it's true it's the reality that is what I've had to resort to at times is well you know if if things aren't going well I'm going to keep calling a meeting until everybody gets on the same page about it Um, but that's important it's important for everybody 
to be on the same page. And it's important if things aren't going well, something needs to change, right? You know, I it's it's really hard that it's been so many people's realities that it's hard to get things to work mm-hmm. the first time around or the second time around or even the third time around. Mm-hmm. But it's important to get it working well. And and that's the key right there is it has to be working well because because this is a child who has like a whole life of potential in front of them. You know, um, I will I will tell you that I I wrote a what if the IEP isn't working piece. It's a step by step, and um, because I had that same thought one day, what do I do? How many times do I do this? How many times do I email? And then I realized as many times as I need to was my answer, Um, which is not just the answer to the piece. It feels like that would be a very short piece, right? Right. How many times you said as many times as you need to, but like the, the, you're right. Keep doing it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, our kids' lives are really on the line. I think a lot of people feel like I really exaggerate when I say that about school um, accommodations and IEPs and stuff, but it's true. Like these are their formative years. They are building their um, self-worth through this. They are building their skills to function successfully in a job in the real world. They um, are affected emotionally. They are deciding what they are and aren't capable of. School is providing all of these messages and that can affect them positively or negatively for their entire lives. So it's not just about grades or school success or academic success or, you know, memorizing all the dates from World War One. It's about so much more than that. And we have to make sure that the team is on the same page about that. Right. And it, it can be very difficult Um and I've come out and said that blatantly at points when I needed to. Like yeah. you're you're talking about what you're doing now can affect his entire life. Right. Like let's make sure we're making the right decisions for the entire and I think you know, we're raising adults here. We're raising adults. And I think it's really important. You know, I think some parents get really nervous and think, I didn't catch this soon enough. I didn't know. Um, I think it's really important to realize like you can still change things too, right? As you know, if you're listening to this podcast today and you're realizing, oh, there might be something going on that I need to address, it's not too late to start doing that too, right? You can always yeah. help your child. You can always start that process. Um, you know, on, on the podcast that we've started in it, we are hearing from parents who are like, oh my goodness, I didn't know that that this even existed as an issue. What do I do now? Um, you know, and, and it's really interesting to hear these stories where parents start realizing I can do this even now, even though he's just starting high school, because there's still all these years, right? Right. Um, and, and it's, yeah, it's never too yeah. late. Yeah. People ask that question all the time. And I, I moderate the forum on Attitude Magazine and even teens and young adults will come on and ask, is it too late for me to get accommodations? Is it too late for me to get help? And I always say, absolutely not. You ask for what you need. You advocate for yourself. Um, it's never too late. And that's not to say that, you know, your child needs help at age six and you just want to see how it goes until age 12 and then try. This is like, you didn't really know that there was an issue or you didn't understand what was going on. You didn't have a diagnosis maybe you know, but I would encourage people as soon as you know, it's time to start acting. Right. There's a difference between wait and see 
and no enact, right? There's yes. this difference. Um, yes. you know, I will just, I'll, I can leave you with this idea that my husband wasn't diagnosed until after our youngest son was diagnosed. He was then diagnosed with ADHD and a language-based learning disability and had struggled to make it through college. He just struggled. After our son was diagnosed, he went, he was diagnosed in his thirties and he knows I tell this story. So it's not like mm-hmm. they hear this and get all upset, but he, um, went back to college, talked to the disability services office, got the supports he need and managed to graduate college way down the line. You know, That's it's so awesome. never too late, but I think having our son diagnosed was the impetus for him to realize, Ooh, I can do this too. Yeah. Um, you know, stories like that, I think are what keep us going, right. <laughs> to know that. Yeah. That the success stories, the yeah. success stories. And, and just knowing that there are other parents like you and me who are doing this, um, and even though we do this more publicly, we still don't have it all figured out. I mean, I don't know, you may have, yeah. and if you do, you no. let me know, because I really <laughs> need that too, but no. we're, we're getting there, right? All together, we're working on it. Right. I am in a way better place than 10 years ago, but I definitely still learn things every day. Mm-hmm. And our kids change, you know, we yeah. could have it mostly figured out when they're 10 and then they go to middle school and everything's different. And now we have to come up with different um, solutions. We have to look at things in a different lens again and you know it's this constant ebb and flow I think and you'll have some ups and you'll have some downs even when you're 10 years in and things are going great there's still going to be issues um you know I was just talking I think in my email to my subscribers the other day that you know we're in a monumentally better place now at 16 than we were at six, nine, you know, all of those earlier, even middle school. And that's not to say that we don't still have struggles. You know, some of it is acceptance of this is, you know, like, like for school, my son has this really high IQ, but he um, barely makes C's and D's in his classes and he doesn't take gifted classes and, you know, accepting that, the, the measure of his intelligence isn't really adequate for him right. in school and then supporting what he is good at and interested in and, you know, those sort of things. But, you know, when I say, hey, we're doing great, it's kind of this, we're doing great with what we have to deal with. Right. You know, we can't change it. Exactly. Um, But, you know, there's always improvement. There's always ways to do things um, better. And for our kids too. Absolutely. I think my 22 year old would tell, tell everybody she was our practice child. You know, (laughs) we're getting it much better with the eight year old than we did with the other two, but we'll make mistakes there too. I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you just own them. You show your kids that we all make mistakes and how to handle it. You apologize, you work on it. You know, that's, that's a good learning point where none of us are perfect for sure. Those of us have this public persona of trying to help others. We still make mistakes too. We do. And I think that's (laughs) what makes us human and um, you know, it's what makes you very relatable to me. That's why, I, you know, I feel very connected to what you do and, and how you're doing it, because I think I, I see that relatability in what yeah. you're, you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. So we are, of course, out of time, and I'm sure you and I both can chat about this for days and yes. weeks, probably. Um, but I think we covered a lot of good basic ground for parents um, who aren't quite sure how to manage this process or this extra layer 
of education. Um, For everybody listening, the show notes will include links to Amanda's work and um, anything else that, you know, social media and other ways to connect with her, um, as well as links to anything that we have talked about in this episode. And there are several things that we have mentioned that I will definitely be linking up for you. And those show notes are available at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 053 for episode 53. Thanks again for being with us and sharing your insights and expertise. Thank you so much for having me. And that will conclude our episode. I'll see everybody next time. Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD Podcast. If you connected with this episode, please share it on social media. Be sure to visit parentingadhdandautism.com to join the conversation and take advantage of Penny's online courses and summits, retreats, parent coaching, and fantastic bonus content.